Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The social unrest gripping America is bringing greater attention to white supremacist and far-right extremist groups. While we focused on these groups previously on The Crisis Next Door, one area that has not received proper due is the role of women in these ideologies. Joining The Crisis Next Door to talk about that is Stephanie Foggett, a resident fellow at the Sufon Center and director of global communications at the Sufon Group, focusing on multilateral security cooperation, counterterrorism cooperation with international organizations and governments, and crisis management. Stephanie, thank you for joining The Crisis Next Door. Thank you so much for having me today. Stephanie, you've published a research brief on the role of women in contemporary far-right extremism and white supremacy. And you say that this is an area that is not only misunderstood, but underexplored outside of a few scholars. Why do you suppose this is so misunderstood and underexplored? Well, first, uh, thank you for having me today to, to discuss this important topic. So to begin, I think it's important to note that gender analysis is typically underexplored and subsequently misunderstood in many areas of public policy, not just in peace and security. What gender analysis means to do is to recognize that an issue or situation can affect and engage men, women, girls and boys in different ways. Gender is often used incorrectly as synonymous with women, but that's not correct. And it can be used to look at dynamics uniquely affecting men and boys too. So I'm currently applying a gender analysis lens to my research on far-right extremism and white supremacy to better understand the movement as a whole and to better assist efforts to counter this threat with a focus on the conversation today being women. Extremist movements and terrorist organizations can both reflect the gender norms and power dynamics of the societies around them, as well as socializing and imposing their own gender stereotypes on individuals within their movements. So I believe that better understanding these dynamics can help us better understand and counter these threats. Now I'll end by noting that while the topic may be understudied as a whole, Several leading scholars, institutions, and even governments are committed to understanding the role of gender in this field. And so there is a growing body of research and scholarship to learn from. How do white supremacist narratives tend to treat women? So that's a really good question, and that's a core focus of my current research. 
I focus a lot on how extremist actors use communications in the online space, and I spend a lot of time monitoring far-right and white supremacist websites, messaging and social media platforms and chat rooms. And I'm finding that women, especially narratives around women, factor heavily in white supremacist narratives, messaging and propaganda. And while the umbrella terms far right or white supremacy cover a range of individuals, groups and movements, each with their own agendas and objectives, I find that these groups often converge around the same online ecosystems where common narratives around women begin to emerge and align. My work reviewing women-focused content in these online spaces presents a disturbing picture. These online spaces are flooded with rhetoric and visual content that is rooted in misogyny and calls for the subjugation of and violence against women. While some women-specific white supremacist content expresses concern and veneration for women, the vast majority expresses disdain and hostility for women. In fact, these online spaces present a disturbing dichotomy of women deserving of protection from violence and women deserving of retribu uh, retributive violence. Do these narratives show an ideal female construct for these groups? What do they see as the ideal woman in their own views on the world? Yeah, so that's another good question. Um, ideologically, white supremacists operating online are rooted in the idea that the white race is threatened by a range of forces working to destroy and replace Western white civilization. So within this worldview, women tend to play an essential, albeit incongruous role. On the one hand, within this rhetoric, white women and girls' purity needs to be defended and protected from violence by outsiders. This is common in rhetoric pushed in these channels, that foreign or non-white men seek to kill, rape, and abuse Western white women. Attacks on white women are not framed as horrific crimes against a woman's personhood and a violation of her rights and agency, but rather as attacks on white men and their property. Violence against white women is used more as a rallying call to action for white men to defend and protect what is theirs. Within this context, a host of visual content projects the ideal white woman as a mother and caregiver of the white nation. Do you find that that portrayal and, and that rally, that call to try and rally the protection against these groups against women, has it been effective in recruiting men to these white supremacist and far-right groups? So the reasons that people join these groups can be, can be complex. And we know that when we're looking at um, what causes people to join groups across the whole, there are a range of push and pull factors. So there are um, individual factors like alienation, exclusion, um, stigma, social factors, political factors, group dynamics like friendships and relationships. We know that these play a, a bigger role by looking at past groups on what's attracting and pulling people in. Um, so it's, it's difficult to know the degree that these narratives are attracting people, but they're certainly present and they certainly play a role in, um, in the ideology and the worldview of these movements. And we tend to focus on men as members of these groups, but what kind of participation do they receive from women? So uh, historically, women have played active roles in most terrorist movements. And narratives about women, gender, and society permeate nearly all major terrorist ideologies. Recent years have seen efforts to unite the right, both online and offline. So a good example would be the now defunct Iron March Forum, a notorious website and online gathering place 
The neo-Nazis and white supremacists between 2011 and 2017 when the website was taken down. So according to uh, research by the Southern Poverty Law Center, Iron March was affiliated with and offered support to a range of fascist and international groups from Serbia, Greece, Australia, Ukraine, the US, the UK. Um, and a leak of the data from this website in 2009 allowed investigative journalists and researchers to uncover the identities of some of these individuals and their links to violence. And uh, some women were, um, were found to have been participating in this and to have played a role. So um, we know that, that women are active. We know that women are there, but it's the anonymity of the space that I'm looking at can make it quite difficult to really understand um, how active women are part participating in this and, and the degree of their participation. Stephanie, is it possible to ascertain what kind of roles women play in these groups? So looking at some of the white supremacist groups that we know have been active in these online spaces, I can give a couple of examples of some of the things that they have gone out to do to attract women. So uh, the group National Action that was prescribed in the UK just in June of this year, a woman called Alice Cutter was jailed for being a member of the group. And she was known to have participated in the group's Miss Hitler beauty pageant. So this was an event that the group had to target and attract women. Another group that we know that is active in these online spaces is called the Antipodean Resistance in Australia. And again, they developed a resistance women's alliance. And again, according to them, it was to provide an antidote to the poison that has been delivered to our girls and women through the degeneracy of the modern society. So we know that that's another group that, that set out to create gendered spaces for women to come in and join. And then further still, lots of women have come out um, as saying that they, you know, they, they played an active role in some of these groups. They often don't want to be named, but in the interviews that they give, they do say that women don't um, necessarily have large numbers in these movements, but when, they, when they're there, they can be considered valuable because um, a lot of what this movement's trying to do is to shift its image, shift its image from this history of, of skinheads and violence to this often clean cut college look. And having women who you can place at the forefront, having women who you can um, have to start to become the voice and the face of these movements can often soften these images and, and change the PR approach that they have with what they do. When behind the scenes, we know what's happening is as ugly as it's always been. Is it surprising that women would be willing to acquiesce in, in the face of the misogyny from these groups? Or is it possible that some of these women think they could possibly change some of these groups and, and move them away from their misogynist attitudes, if not their racist ideals? I mean, first of all, women aren't immune to hate, to violence, to racism, to extremism. So many of the women who are attracted to this, they are attracted for those reasons. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't think otherwise, or we shouldn't give women these outs that they're not there and they don't have the same agency as the men in why they're there. So I see very little that women are trying to use these movements as a means to enhance the place of women in society. They're attracted to it, or the same as I mentioned before, those um, pull and push factors of, of stigma, alienation, um, feeling alone or wanting to be a part of something bigger in this world. Those are the things that attract them similar in the way that they attract men. 
Stephanie, given the amount of anonymity online with these groups, how can experts such as yourself determine whether the content is created or managed by women? So you're right. Um, the active roles and participation of women in these online spaces can be difficult to measure. These spaces are dominated by anonymity. It's difficult for me to know the, you know, which channels and, and what content is managed by or created by women themselves. Um, I can, I can, you know, refer to context clues. So sometimes I find that um, these posts use language like we and us when they're focusing on women or when they're posting women focused things so they're actively implying that the person posting is a woman but it's impossible to verify and there have been instances of past um terrorist and extremist groups pretending that that it's women online when really it's men so it's it's tough to know and i would say further still i focus very much on, on the the hardened most violent end of the spectrum and it's important to know that these groups are really now pushing for what they call a leaderless resistance strategy, meaning that they want to um, they want to push for small independent groups or individuals who work completely separately to achieve a common violent goal. So within this, it's becoming more difficult to identify individual members anyway, further still, whether women are are participating in these more offline furtive spaces of the movement. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and I'm talking with Stephanie Foggett, a resident fellow at the Sufan Center, focusing on the role of women in contemporary far-right extremism and white supremacy. I've talked with your colleague at the Sufan Center, Colin Clark, about the competition between white supremacist terror groups and the Islamic terror groups in the Middle East, and how they tend to follow each other's exploits and borrow ideas. Are there any similarities between the two different ideologies when it comes to female portrayals or involvement in the groups? Yeah, so th that's another good question. There certainly are similarities. So I would say that both groups are obsessed with purity. So whether it's the purity of the religion or the purity of the race, they both present that the defined in-group is facing an existential threat from a defined out-group or groups. And within this context, there are similarities about women. So in-group women are deemed to be physically under attack from outsiders, but they're also deemed to be morally under attack. They're facing moral corruption by feminism, liberalism, the LGBT plus, um, plus movement. So you're, you're, you're seeing both of these ideologies fear the same um, elements of progressive Western society and the encroachment of of those views on their women. Um, but there are also differences. You know, women experience life differently across national, religious, and political contexts. So we also have to factor in that, that women will participate in and experience their participation in these movements in different ways for, for different reasons. But overall, I would say, yes, misogyny coupled with lionizing so-called traditional values and gender stereotypes is common across both groups. Islamic radical groups are known for luring new recruits with the promise of virgins in heaven. Do far-right extremists also use women as a recruiting tool for young men? 
So I think there might be a slight equivalence in that there is some imagery of um, so-called attractive women that appear in this white supremacy ecosystem, implying that men who join will be rewarded by romantic or sexual attention from women. But I think, as we touched upon before, um, you know, these narratives about, again, virgins, jihadi brides, women, they become quite popular and they get a lot of media attention, but I actually think it distracts from the real questions and the real picture that's facing women in these movements. And again, for men and women, there are similar push and pull factors, alienation, anger, frustration, and also they want to share in these positive things, um, a sense of adventure, a sense of brotherhood or sisterhood, or being part of something that, that's bigger than yourself. So I think those are going to be the things that pull more than, um, than the overt imagery of women. The incel movement is known for advocating violence against women for rebuffing sexual advances. Is that movement somehow tied in with far-right groups? Yeah, so the incel movement is certainly a subgroup under the far-right umbrella. So specifically, the incel movement directs hostility against women for using sex or the refusal of sex as a means to further belittle men. In 2014, a man called Elliot Roger killed six people in an attack in California. The manifesto he shared was filled with, you know, deep loathing of women. And since then, this online community has lionized him. In 2008, a similar attack in Toronto, Canada, was also tied to this movement. So there is a lot of um, interest in the incel movement because it specifically is, you know, focuses on women. But I also make the point that dangerous narratives about women, gender, and society permeate most of the far right and white supremacy space beyond just the incel movement. Stephanie, does the federal government take white supremacists seriously enough or their threats against women? So um, I think, again, another really, really important question for government and law enforcement. I mean, white supremacist online ecosystems are filled with rhetoric and visual content directed against a range of groups and communities. Anti-women and anti-feminist content intersects with racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, anti-democratic, and, and other hateful content. So the consequences of this violence against women and girls because of this ideology should be of great concern. But as I, as I also think it's important to mention, this conversation isn't only about women. These narratives um, about women and about attacks against women, they also harm racial, ethnic, and religious minorities, as well as the LGBTQ plus community. So I think that law enforcement and government, they owe it to the communities they protect to understand how one of the most toxic and violent ideologies in this country affects every, the everyday lives of Americans of all backgrounds. What does law enforcement need to do to better protect women from these groups, as well as all various uh, ethnic minority groups from far-right extremists, as well as clamping down on the extremists? Are, are there things they could be doing right now to improve that situation? So I think above all, to understand and to ask the right questions about, about women in these spaces. So I can say, for example, having studied the Islamic State a lot, I mean, my, my colleagues and I, we had one of um, 
a big data set, we were looking at the numbers of men and women who traveled to join the Islamic State, for example. And initially, governments weren't giving any information on how many men and women were joining, were leaving, were being killed. Eventually, um, you know, by 2017, we started to get that information and it helped us frame a better picture of what was going on. So I would say in this space, we need to get more information about the different about how men and women are participating in these movements, um, what they're seeing, numbers that then we can work with so that we can apply some of the same understanding and lessons from other groups to this space. Because there really is a lack of information because of anonymity, because um, I would say that the, you know, the, the global counterterrorism community has been focusing on another threat for a very long time, while not really looking at the rise of this one. So more needs to be done. We need more information. We need more research. We need, um, we need a, greater, a greater focus on this. The Black Lives Matter movement has resulted in greater calls for social justice across the world. Is that awareness something that can help in of itself in combating far-right extremism and, and violence against women from these groups? Yeah, so, I mean, as I really touched upon, um, this, this framing, um, it's, it's important that we understand that the framing about attacks on white women by so-called outsiders, that goes back to the beginning of white supremacy, to be frank, and it's, it's a lie as old as time, especially in the context of this country. So for that reason, I think it's important to understand that what I'm talking about isn't only about women, and that we're not only talking about the safety of women. So in the 1980s, a professor and civil rights advocate called Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality as a crucial lens to understand concepts and structures of power and the way that they intersect. So using this lens, we have to recognize and address the fact that depictions of women in white supremacy ecosystems do not just negatively affect white women, they also negatively affect the safety of men and women from other racial, ethnic, religious, and or LGBTQ plus backgrounds. And to be frank, many white women have and continue to be complicit in perpetuating these dangerous narratives. So understanding this presents a different framing of the victim-perpetrator construct that is common with women as victims and males as perpetrators. White supremacy is insidious in that way. And I think that's an important element of the discussion because white women and white women's bodies are used to, are used to incite violence against other groups and people too. Very interesting research, Stephanie, and uh, a lot of education is necessary by many people around the world as we dive into this very complex subject. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you so much for having me. We've been joined by Stephanie Foggett, a resident fellow at the Soufan Center and Director of Global Communications at the Soufan Group. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.